new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Happy to be here. And if you haven't uh, listened to this podcast before, we are a podcast where we interview various guests about their life, about their loss, and any dreams they've had of their loved ones. Also, there are two ways you can help contribute to the podcast. You can help through contributions, through links that we'll have in our show notes, or griefdreams.ca. There are two talks that you can find on our website as well from Dr. Joshua Black and Jade Carling Black. Check those out. And through rating us on Apple Podcast. Appreciate the podcast. Give us a five-star rating and we'll appreciate that. All right. So on to today's episode, we have with us Julie Potter, and she is a certified social worker who has experience in home care, hospice, nursing homes, and hospitals. For 20 years, she turned her expertise towards coordinating a spousal bereavement program as well as a hospital-based wellness program program for people 60 and over. She has recently released the book, Harnessing the Power of Grief. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I love reading people's bios because you get to see a side of who they are and like what they write. And it's amazing when you've been in the field of work, it seems like for your almost entire career. So how long have you been in as a social worker? So I think I was born to be a social worker because even when I was a little girl, I just really enjoyed helping people. So I just kind of fell into it. But um, so I would say total my career was like 30 years. 20 was like the last where I worked in the spousal bereavement program. So 10 years before that also. That's a long time to be in any field. So you're like an expert <laughs> in oh. what you do. And so I guess my, my question to you is, did you always continue to love it or did you switch to different like things partway through? I know 10 years later you started that bereavement program. I, well, I feel that my way of helping people in social work really just evolved towards helping people with loss because that's like, so natural to us. And I was really in medical social work, you know, in nursing homes, hospitals, home care. And uh, really, when people experience a loss, it's very hard on their immune system. So that's why I was attracted to helping people through grief, because if they get help through that, then um, they probably will survive it and won't have to go back into the hospital, go to the hospital or become ill. So um, it was sort of just like natural outgrowth of my earlier career. And so I know when looking at all those fields, burnout is such a, a, a cause of concern. Did you ever have that in your own life when you were working that or saw that around you? I most certainly did. Yeah. Um, it. I think especially in the, the medical world where things are at such a fast pace and uh, there's so many more things required of people in terms of documentation, et cetera, that um, burnout, I did experience it many times. And so I just take like a uh, mental health day off or I would, I learned meditation and actually I've been a meditator for 40 years and oh my gosh, it is so helpful. It really helped me to, to remain centered through everything. Yes, I did experience burnout. Now that I'm retired, I, I don't, but 
uh, I certainly have compassion for people who are working now and uh, can see that it is uh, it can be a big situation in somebody's life. I do the time I was working in hospice, I could always tell when I was starting to experience burnout when you know I'd be at a social gathering and someone would say, "Well, what do you do?" So I would say, "Well." I work in hospice. And then they they would say, oh, I could never do that. And then it would be like, gosh, maybe I can't either. <laughs> yeah. So then I knew I had to kind of, you know, take care of myself a little bit better. I think that's an important conversation to have now because I think a lot of people are feeling burnt out with everything that's going on in, in the pandemic. And so one of your tips is to to meditate. What other tips do you have for people who are experiencing that on how to identify it, and then also, like, how do you how do you work with that? So, like during the pandemic, I guess I could just speak personally that we, I feel, and I think many people share this, you know, a sense of lack of meaning. Like, what is what is this all about? You know, we're isolated. We might uh, have to act in a different way in, in socializing with people. So, I feel that. The thing to do is to really realize that what we are doing, although it doesn't feel like it, we are helping. So if we have to remain isolated, that that's our contribution to the pandemic. And that uh, for a long time, in the beginning of it, I experienced the fear that, oh, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get COVID. So I then realized, okay, I just have to enjoy each day as much as possible and this is really out of my hands. I'm not going to spend my time worrying about it. I'm just going to take my precautions and then, you know, just accept what comes. And I think reaching out to people is something that helps out a lot. And I, I have found during the pandemic that people are very willing to talk about it as a loss in their lives. It's, it's not like the death of a person where... Uh, although many people have experienced death of a person in the pandemic, and that's really so hard. Um, but when it's a universal loss, we can relate to one another, and we're not scared of one another. When it's an individual death, people then kind of get scared. Oh, should I say this? Should I say that? Maybe I should not say anything. Maybe I'll avoid this person. But with the pandemic, it's like totally around us. So reaching out to one another is, is uh, something that I have found and uh, really helps me to uh, feel at ease in this situation. So what I hear you're, you're saying like through that was people just need to do their best, you know, and understand what where their best is at that time and really be kind to themselves. And then also to be vulnerable to reach out when they are in need. And, and to be okay with that. And that's its own task, which I'm still learning to be able to do. I tend to, it can get further my, uh, my anxieties or my stress can get, I guess, to a point where I probably should have maybe reached out a day sooner. And it's just understanding like when you need to reach out to really help you as you move, move through this. And you said like meditation has been a great aspect for you. And so as you sort of moved through, I'm guessing burnout is such a big thing, especially now, but also throughout your life when people are grieving and they're trying to also have to work. So when you started your 
your group. Did you see that a lot or do you see that now where the stress of a loss is also impacting their ability to to work effectively? Oh, oh yeah, most most definitely. I mean, but uh, the thing with grief, though, is quite amazing is that there are two things that happen. People are grieving, and then at, at the same, not at the same time, but next door to that, they're rebuilding their lives. So these two things actually don't happen together. So sometimes work um, can really inspire somebody when they're grieving and be like their one relief from their grief. And then, of course, at other times, grief intervenes at the workplace and, and they can't make it through the day. You know, they just might um, be um, overrun or, you know, over, the grief will overshadow their day. But usually it is that the the grieving happens and then the rebuilding of the life or, or the work or whatever they were doing or or the new skills they're learning, that's another thing that happens. And actually, the fear that people have sometimes when they're grieving is they might say, you know, I had a really good day at work today, or I had a really fun afternoon with my friends. I'm afraid that I'm forgetting my loved one. And they, they don't want that. They say, please, I just don't want to have any more fun. I want to grieve my loss. But um, the thing is, is that the having the fun times, having the, the um, building, building up times, and then having the grieving times are really part of the whole grief process. Sort of like in Ecclesiastes, you know, there's a time for everything. So it's time to have a good time, and there's a time to grieve. And they do, um, by and large, except like in the very initial phases where you know, the first couple of months when it's like people might describe being in shock or they might say, I'm like in a dream world, you know, what has happened. It's kind of like all pervading their grief experience. But little by little, it, there is this natural separation that occurs. And this was uh, formulated by this woman named Strobe, S-T-R-O-E-B-E. It seems to now be to be accepted. And it, to me, it makes some sense. Yeah, I think it makes sense too. Sam, when we're all very unique and individuals, and I look back at my own grief and I see, yeah, going to, I wasn't working per se. I guess I probably was, but I was also going to school and I saw that was more of more of my, uh, my job. And that actually helped me when I was grieving, but I can see other people around me that that didn't help. And it's just interesting to sort of see the differences that we have. And so I want to go back to you starting this group 20 years ago for bereaved individuals, because now it's really picking up. There's a lot of support for bereavement groups. But back then, I can't imagine the difficulty maybe you had trying to set that up. So what was the conversation like to get that group going? And did people understand at that time? There were some difference, differences. The um, the hunger for help was there. So that is like an amazing thing. So that's what kind of got us started. But we reached out to the community and local agencies and, and said, you know, would would you be interested in, in um, helping to set up this program? And people really were interested. The difference was 
that when we wanted people to join a support group, they thought, oh, you know, I'm really not crazy. I, I don't need therapy. I just need help through my grief. So at the, in the beginning, we had a lot of one-on-one help. One volunteer would help who had been widowed him or herself would help a newly widowed person. And then we almost have to twist people's arms to join the support group. Then as time wore on, and we were sort of like at that point where support groups were just being accepted, that was finally only what people wanted. Then we had to twist our arms to have a one-on-one volunteer. So it was uh, it, the hunger, though, for this knowledge and for this help was was there. I was really um, amazed that, that that was the case. And people did tell me that before our group started that um, like one woman had been widowed 25 years when she joined the group as a volunteer. She would kind of made it through her own grief process. But she said, oh, I wish this group were here when I was a younger woman with my five sons when my husband died because I had no one to talk to. Every night I would just bury my head in the pillow and, and sob. And that was how she made it through. And uh, it is really completely different now. I mean, just thinking of your own um, group that you have set up there in learning about dreams and and uh, sharing dreams and letting people know the importance of them in life. That's just amazing. That That would not have happened a long time ago. But the hunger was there for it, for all this information. Wow, yeah, I can't uh, I can't imagine having a system or living in a world where you didn't get at least a couple options for that. And I can definitely see how people would gravitate towards wanting to be in group like like you said you'd start with individual and then they went into groups and people just didn't want to go back to individual which I I think is great and that's a sign that as humans like we really like to connect we really like to have conversations with others and hear the stories of others and I think hearing stories of other people's uh, losses and uh, helps us with our own uh, which is again I think probably why we do the podcast as well Mm. and so Julie I'm curious about your own loss so did you have a loss prior to starting these groups or was it something that you only had after? So uh, I had, uh, my mother died, you know, before I started that group. And then my father died like after I did. So it was all within a period of a couple of years that uh, my mother died and then my father died. So yes, I did experience that. And then in the, in the last few years, actually the last 10 years, uh, my sister died and my brother died and I helped to take care of, oh wow, most of them before they died, not my father. He died in his sleep, which is such a wonderful thing for him, but such a shocking thing for us, you know, for everybody else. So I did experience um, those losses. And uh, yeah, I think they, I, the hardest one for me was when my mother died. And I do remember just um, feeling about that, that I would just be, you know, of course we were all upset, but we were also, you know, adults. We had our lives that we were living in our jobs that we were working at. So we, we were doing all that stuff at the same time. And 
like I said, one and the other. But I do remember many times waking up in the middle of the night and sitting up bolt upright and just having to say to myself, my mother died. I mean, it just was so unbelievable to me that um, it I couldn't believe it. And so I, I know that grief fully helped me to believe the unbelievable. And, and uh, I do feel her... Um, presence in my life now in many, many different ways. So, and that was about 25 years ago that, uh, well, maybe that would have been, yeah, no longer than that. Yeah. Wow. And, um, that was, you said before, oh no, that was after you started the program. So did you get, did you feel like you got the support you needed through that? So, uh, in my work, uh, actually, that is interesting because I hadn't really thought of that until you brought it up to me now, but I haven't thought about that in so many years. Actually, no, uh, I did not receive the support. And here I was working at a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, people just think that after a few days, it's over with and you just have to be, you know, ready to go again. So, uh, no, I did not receive the support at that time. And, um, that was, that was hard. I, I think that is a continual thing for people in their jobs. Isn't that, and I don't, I think that's, I don't think that's uncommon. I think mm-hmm. that can happen. And even today, I think that can happen where people who are either in, in those fields or in, you know, supporting fields don't necessarily get the support they need. And I think that just shows you how, why it's important to kind of continue to advocate for talking, for helping people and for, you know, how to help others who are grieving. I think that's, that's why it's so important because again, for some weird way, we've uh, gotten away from that and it's almost unnatural in a lot of ways. I think they're just habits we need to reinstill in terms of thinking about those people and how to help those people and reaching out and, and yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think a long time ago when people wore a black armband, I don't know what women did. I think women wore just black, and then the man would wear the armband. Well, maybe yeah. they both wore the armband. But uh, that, you know, I guess it's natural for people to forget, mm-hmm. you know, what that what happened, especially if they're like people you're working with. You know, your family will never forget. Mm-hmm. But to have some identifier that you are a grieving person is... Um, probably helped a lot. I remember Joan Didion did talk about that in, in her book, The Year of Magical Thinking, that a long time ago when you were early in grief, people would just be really careful around you. They wouldn't speak loudly. They wouldn't be demanding of you. They would just kind of give you this wide berth and you kind of very respectful of them. And even if you didn't know the person who died, you just knew that they were grieving. You just were like real careful. And um, I, I do, did not experience that in my work. I thought people were normal, just their regular <laughs> selves. You know, their their good selves, their bad selves, their demanding selves. You know, everything. They uh, they were just the same people. And of course, I was leading a bereavement support group, so they were not interested in my grief, and that wasn't my role to share that with them. But uh, except maybe little snippets, you know, a little bit of self-listening here and there. 
but um, my other colleagues, I did not find that. Even though they're great people, there was not that, uh, you know, hey, let's go have a cup of coffee and sit and chat for a little bit. You know, there was not that. And I'm not very, I'm not that good at reaching out to people for help. So, you know, that's sort of, an, for me too, a skill that is important for me to continue to develop. And so I'm curious. So you've, your first loss was around 35 years ago, as you're saying, and then mm-hmm. you've had multiple losses since. So why now write the book? Because some people write it soon after their loss or maybe a couple of years, but it's been a long time. So why did you decide to write your book, Harnessing the Power of Grief? Actually, for me, it was sort of like my legacy for what everything that I've learned about grief and how I've been inspired by people who have been grieving. And I did put some of my own uh, story in into the book, even though it's been a while. Grief is like an undercurrent for our entire life. And so all of the people who we who have died before us, they're now a part of us. And we continue to learn from them as we gain our own years of wisdom. We can look back and think, oh, that's why they were that way. Now I understand. And uh, so it it really was sort of like a, a complete look at grief from my own experience and from the experience of the people that I worked with. I just want, I, I found when I would read a book on grief, and I've certainly read a bunch of them, that after a while, about midway through, I'd get kind of bored, like, oh, okay, I'm getting this. And it wouldn't really resonate with me. So I decided that they were good books. So what, what was it? What would make a good grief book? And I made my book such that you could read it from cover to cover, but the way the chapters are arranged, they're there to support you. So if you are having um, a lot of anxiety, you can read the chapter on fear, or you can read the chapter on sudden loss. You know, there's just, I feel that I wanted it to be a book that people could pick up when they needed it, and then put it down, and then continue in their life. I did want to share one experience that I did put in the book about my mother, and I, I feel it uh, shows the undercurrent of grief in our lives. But um, okay, at this point, my mother had been deceased, you know, probably about 30 years, and I was driving down the street, and I saw a woman who, from the back, who looked like my mother, had a little cane, white slacks, and a white hat, you know, just just, oh my gosh, that looks like my mother. And then, uh, but I drove by, you know, this was mostly a peripheral vision. So I knew my mother had died, but I still drove around the block and came back to where she had been. And of course she wasn't there, but I, I believe she had just turned into a store. But then her death, which had been many years before, came back to me. Now I was a different person. So qualities that she had that I thought were not good qualities, now in my, at my time in life, I just now see them with much more compassion. That Oh, those were just part of being a person. And so it all came back to me 
and I feel much more compassion for her and for myself. So it made me aware of how grief is, as um, John Jordan has said, it's a cyclical process. We just It's like we're going up a spiral staircase, and then we come back to the same point, but we're at a different level. And then our loved one is too. We, we see them. We see them more clearly. So I hope that all that answers your question a little bit. Yes, of course. And I'm curious too, what was the quality that at first when it comes to your mom, you thought it it was a bad quality to have for, for raising you? And then how did you shift that? So I'm just curious about what that was. So I, okay, so when when she died, I was in my 40s, which is kind of a fiery time because you're just kind of making your life at that point. You're juggling everything at the same time. So uh, my mother had like, she was kind of depressed sometimes. And then also she had some anger too, that she had a temper. So then as the years went on, I realized that her temper was not that terrible. She would just, she, when I remember that in her life, she was at that point herself, which is kind of a fiery time in her own life where she was trying to juggle everything. And I didn't really understand that when I was when I was growing up. And then also her being depressed. Now I have so much compassion for that because I too have depression sometimes. That's why I'm such an avid meditator. And I thought, wow, now I really get that. She really was struggling. So that's uh you know, that helped me to see her really as a human being and not as, uh, you know, sort of the symbol of this mom who does, who's blamed for everything. So, yeah, no, um, I, I can understand that because, yeah, we have these high expectations for other people and the more we live and the more that we reflect on our own behavior, the more you realize how hard it is to be perfect and how impossible it is to maintain these high expectations even on yourself. And so when we put them on others, we just have a, we get angry at them and stuff. And I had the same thing with my dad too. And even my mom, where I had these expectations, especially as a teen. And then as I sort of grew up and started having to work and I realized how hard it was and how tired and exhausting you are. And then you have these kids, I can only imagine that wants your attention, but you're like, just, (laughs) you're ready for bed. You want some alone time. And there's, I had three siblings, there was four of us. And I can't, like, I can't imagine how tough that is. And so it seems like that as you've aged, you're able to forgive her by looking at her with new eyes. Yeah, that is so true. Yeah, it's so that makes me grateful that grief is an undercurrent in our life, you know, so that I can really care about these people better, you know, now because they really still are with me. I'm glad that happened to you too, Joshua. Sorry that it did, but anyway, we're not alone. No, and I think it happens to probably most of us where, you know, it's just, can you recognize it? And that's the goal. It was the goal for me, and I realized how much wisdom is within those moments. It's just self-reflecting on who you are and also the expectations that we put on others and the expectations we put on ourselves, because that's also part of, go back to our burnout conversation. When we have these high expectations on ourselves, that can also just lead to burnout. 
rather than just like going at the pace that you need to. So, you know, it's just like the more we can talk about it, the more people can recognize it within themselves. And I said, that's a part of the wisdom and harnessing the power of grief as you, as you talk about is really looking at these undercurrents and allowing yourself to be able to shift your perspective. So true. So true. So I did have a dream about my parents. This was recent. And uh, so I want to just tell you this, this dream, I dreamed that they were giving me an award. It was like a card, a little card that's a, that was just like a card that in my real life, I had a therapist who gave it to me and, and she was encouraging me to go on a trip and she said, have a good trip, enjoy yourself. You know, so that was that. So they gave me, my parents gave me this card and then they gave me this like book, which was sort of like in a magazine form, but it was like the book about me, my life. And they were so happy. It was sort of like congratulating me. And uh, they looked to me like they were probably in their 50s. You know, they looked like they were kind of, you know, really looked great. They were obviously looking a little bit older, but like they weren't old yet. So, okay, that was their 50s. And um, it was just a very inspiring dream to have. And now what I notice as an older woman, that many of my dreams about important people in my life, I can relate. I, now that I look back, even on these dreams, there's an element of a journey, you know, like this trip <laughs> that we're on. And it's really, uh, it, it really is quite amazing to me now. I, I believe that we also interpret dreams a little differently as we uh, move along in our life. I've looked at other dreams before, and there, all, there was something in those dreams, you know, a vehicle or a key or, you know, something that uh, would, you know, going into a, a room or going out of a room into a new place, signifying a journey. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. I'm glad you brought up that dream because it's such a beautiful dream about just reflecting on you. And your parents being able to provide you with some sort of congratulations on on your journey, on who you've become. And as as kids, like that's something I don't care how old I am, there's always gonna be a part of me that would that wants that to for my my mom or my dad or or like our my elders <laughs> to validate who what I've been doing and the struggles that I've been through to get to where I am because it's a very beautiful moment when you can just sit and look at yourself to sort of see all the stuff you've been through and all the people that you were able to help along the way, especially say with your groups and stuff, but also those very hard difficulties about shifting perspective. And just quickly, we talked about how you were able to do that with your, your mom and the anger. And I can't imagine how, how that actually had an impact on other people and other situations that you come across because it's all intertwined with one another. So I, I love it. And I, I, it seems like such a powerful dream. So when you woke up from that dream, how did you feel? Oh, absolutely ecstatic. It was first so happy to see my parents and to see them so happy. It was just, it was wonderful. And it was sort of like we were at a party, although I didn't see other people. I just knew there was other people around, but I only had eyes for them. So it was, it was really great. Was it weird you know, just we, looking just looking back, was it weird seeing them younger than yourself? <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. I didn't think of that. 
That is great. Yeah, because I actually saw myself in the dream. I think I was in my 50s, too, in the dream. I mean, uh-huh. when I think of that, it's sort of like, maybe it was in my 40s. I don't know, but I was sort of like, not like the age I am now. Uh-huh. I didn't really, I just I just noticed them. I guess it was a little, you know, sometimes in dreams, I don't really see myself. You know, sometimes I do, but sometimes I'm... I'm the witness of what's happening. I, I see it out there, but I don't. I'm not aware of my physical body, but I'm aware of other people's physical bodies. Yeah, that is interesting. How say like maybe you're younger in that dream, but maybe just some dreams. Like I look back at some of mine, and I don't really know my age per se, so I just figure it's the age I am now. But you're right. Like maybe you just felt younger, or maybe your age doesn't come into play. But it's always interesting looking back at the imagery when you're awake because you realize oh wow like looking back at like through my eyes they're younger than me in the, like just in that image <laughs> i also think like with uh i think with parents and children sometimes you'll always feel like a child with your parents mm. yeah that's a good point oh yes i think that's true yeah all i have to do is sleep over at my mom's house and there it is <laughs> there it is <laughs> <laughs> She's cooking and Joshua cleaning. getting in his jam yeah. jams. <laughs> getting a back scratch. <laughs> you know, there's another way I've been looking at this because now I have a daughter and uh, I see how she's uh, always interested in my uh, being a little better. She, like if I take a class and say, oh, that is so good, mom. You know, <laughs> I realize that even when we're a little kid, we're trying to raise our parents. You know, we have these little tantrums or whatever to get our way so that they will Im- improve and be better parents. <laughs> but I see that uh, oh, we yeah. think yeah. that eventually the roles shift, but actually they've sort of been shifting right from the beginning. Yeah, sometimes I'm like that with my dog. I'm like, am I training him or is he training me? <laughs> I think he's training me. <laughs> It's very good. So in your book, do you mention anything about basically harnessing the power of grief dreams or no? Because there is a lot of wisdom and power within them, as we just talked about. I wish I had. I did not put much about dreams in, in my book. And then when I found your website, I loved it. And I guess this stems from my work because people, when we have support groups, some people would tell about these dreams they had, which were so fabulous. And then other people would not have dreams and they'd feel really bad. So we just sort of like let it evolve, let it evolve. But I like the way you approach dreams, which is to help people have them, you know, to imagine them and uh, and then to also realize their power because I now really feel that they actually are a visitation of the person you love, that they, that's they're really real. I mean, they certainly feel real in that dream. There's always a message there. Yeah, it's very interesting. Actually, what? I was going to say, so, yeah, it's interesting. Like, it's people's different beliefs on the topic doesn't really impact the power that these dreams can have, which I love. And it's just about providing a space for people to share and to understand and normalize these experiences because there just wasn't, it's not talked about in support groups or a lot of research wasn't done on the topic. And so it's just our part to try to just say, it's okay to sort of have these and whatever they are, positive or negative, it's okay. And we can talk about it. 
in a safe space and just trying to teach that right as we're as I, I teach my mom about these dreams, I'm, you're also trying to teach the world too to just acknowledge these a little bit better within within the world so people feel, they're able to feel that they're not going quote unquote crazy or that just that there's a lot of tips within the dream to help people understand where maybe they need to look as they move forward, especially if it's a negative dream. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so true. You know, I did, yeah, and I, I really congratulate you on this work. I think it's wonderful. You know, I did have a negative dream about my father, very short, but um, when he died, oh my gosh, I felt so terrible because he's just a wonderful guy. So I had this dream about him that he was waiting on a snowy, sleety street for a ride, and but I just saw him as he was before he died. As an older guy, a little bit frail, and, you know, he looked like he was before he died. And when I woke up from that dream, I realized, you know, I can't have him back the way he was. That's finished. You know, and then it's interesting. He was waiting for a ride where, where he was going, this journey motif I'm really realizing now. So that was a painful dream, but it, it did help me to go deeper into my feelings about him and, and him not being with me on this physical plane. So you're right. The, even the, the negative dreams have a lot to teach us. Yeah, that theme is so interesting with your dreams of just that journey and where people are, are ourselves and others. And I can see how that dream can be formed, especially after loss, because that is a part of of what we're trying to deal with is the person has it feels like they're further away from us you know and so it's mm-hmm. trying to how do we maintain some sort of bond as we move move forward so that we don't forget them kind of thing so they don't feel so distant and that's the struggle right that's the struggle because you don't have that physical body anymore or you don't have that voice you can call and so it's like yeah. how do we maintain those bonds and and so i'm asking gonna ask you so how do you i know writing this book is part of that but what other things do you do to maintain a bond with all those that have died? So, um, of course, I think about them a lot. But then I have like this shelf, a bookshelf, which has a lot of pictures on it of people from my family, my husband's family. Uh, many of them, most of them in this little shelf have died. But I realize, you know, when I'm there before that shelf, you know, I sort of, do an inward bow or I might speak to them, you know, might tell them a little bit about my day. And I uh, realized that in many countries, they have ancestor worship where actually they, they do that. They light an incense stick to the ancestors like every day so that their presence is felt all the time. And, you know, it can be in the form of uh, praying to the ancestors or scolding the ancestors, you know, why did you do this? Asking for their guidance, just being and being really grateful for them. And I just uh, so have kind of a, adopted this uh, practice, and I think it's so powerful because it really um, connects us to the past. And maybe it's just my age, but it's uh, I feel it connects us to others in the past too, that we might not have thought about in a while. You know, like I'm 
just recently, began thinking about, um, from my childhood, friends of my parents that were such a big part of my childhood. And But I hadn't thought about them in years because you know, I didn't live with them and we didn't see them all the time, but they were, you know, a really important part of our life. So the ancestor worship is to really honor honor them and then also, you know, invite them to be with us. It, it, I think it really does help. You know, like that Mexican and Latin American custom, the Day of the Dead, uh, where they invite their special ancestor to come uh, and they have special food and they have parties and the food is all the foods that the, the loved, the deceased loved one enjoyed. So it's, and then they spend the whole day, maybe it's more than one day, you know, talking and celebrating the life of the loved one. I think it just, and that, that's every year. So they, you know, that person's life is never, never lost. And also, I think we do this naturally. Like, you know, there's the, in Arlington, Virginia, there's the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. It really bothers us that we don't know these people who died. It's really important that uh, they be honored. I don't know if you have uh, followed the news about the pandemic in the in uh, the states, but in West Virginia, the governor of West Virginia discovered that 168 people had died of the virus and it had not been reported to the state. So he was like angry and disturbed about this. But very quickly in his next public appearance, he read the names of each of those people who died. I just thought that was so beautiful to really make those unknown people known. And it's we really want that. We want that. Yeah. And I think that's a... Like you said, there's a part of us where it we yearn for that and we seek that out and it brings us comfort, I think, during those times. You know, it's, uh, one, it's uh, uh, one form of uh, continuing that bond. And I think there's there's many other forms. And I think people uh, choose what, what suits them best and what works for them with their ideology. And, you know, we whether it's uh, if you're saying butterflies or you pick up a nickel and that reminds you of your loved one or you have uh, a sacred spot in your home, uh, pictures, uh, maybe a, a special song that reminds you of that person. These are all beautiful ways to remember those that you have lost and you want to continue that bond and, and have that link with them. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing for sure. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And so I'm curious about your daughter. So has she ever had a dream of your parents? Because you have these pictures around. I'm just, I know some children do. I'm just curious if you've ever asked her. You know, she has not had a dream about my parents. She, But she did tell me that she has had dreams about my brother-in-law, who's on my husband's side of the family. And that is the only yeah, no, she's not dreamt about my parents, but she did dream about Ed, who's her uncle. And uh, interestingly, he did not have an easy life. He really, you know, he, um, he had kind of a hard life, and uh, he died only when he was 60, and he just really had a hard life. And it was not that, uh, he just didn't really make it uh, in his in his profession either. Well, anyway... My daughter and I just always felt very close to him. And uh, 
and we sometimes share dreams that we've had about Ed, and he is it really has kind of opened our eyes to at least mine that there are people in my life that okay maybe they're not succeeding or whatever or maybe they're unhappy but they really have a purpose in my life that maybe I don't understand and uh, so uh, we have shared dreams about Ed and he's sort of like been in a protective role almost like an angelic role and we uh, have felt really close to him so it's uh, whereas other members of the family he actually might have caused more heartache you know because he didn't he really was not somebody who was like quote unquote successful. So um, yeah, she just dreamed about Ed. Oh, that's so cool. Had, did she ever meet Ed before he died? Oh yes, yes. Because yeah. we would go visit Tom's family, my husband's family, at least twice a year. You know, you know, twice a year, and then maybe other times in between, but always twice a year. And it's interesting, you know, you, you know, when you give somebody a hug. You just feel sort of a tight hug, you know. Whereas with Ed, it was kind of like an enfolding hug. You know, you just felt kind of folded in this hug, very gentle. And uh, he, I, he really was just a, a wonderful person. I always felt very comfortable in his presence. And so did she. She felt very comfortable. And that's, to me... Uh, that is, is was really cool. So I, maybe that's helped me with my own uh, compassion too, with people I see that you know maybe they're just not uh, they're not making. Maybe that's what they have to do in this lifetime, and you, know, you just really never know the role someone has in your life, what they have to teach us, oh, and also what they have to learn. It's so true. There's so many unknowns and you got to sort of walk into it with curiosity rather than judgment or expectation Mm -hmm. and to see how they can surprise us. Because there's there's a lot of people we meet that we sort of judge right off the bat and we close our heart to them. But everyone has a a story and everyone has love to give if, if we can sit with them and just see them. So I'm curious as as we move forward, if you could have a dream tonight of someone who has died, what would that dream look like to you? Oh, wow. If I had a dream tonight, I, I, I do would like to be with four people from my past. So my parents and um, there were two people who lived right around the cor- corner from us. The mother was Chips and her daughter was Kay. And Kay actually became like the housekeeper for our family. And sometimes I go over to their house, for their apartment for dinner, or, you know, we just became like a family together. I would love to be with my parents and with Chips and Kay, just sitting in a backyard and having like a cocktail together. But I wouldn't drink the cocktail because I don't drink cocktails, but my parents loved cocktails in the dream of course i could drink one oh, okay i was just gonna ask like, maybe in the dream you could have one <laughs> <laughs> anyway and it would be uh it would be in the past you know it would be in my parents home in the backyard where they frequently would have evening cocktails and um but it would still be 
very comforting. Very comforting. So what age would you want them to be at? So last dream was 50. Is that a good age? Do you want to increase, decrease that? What do you think? Oh, I think I'd put them up there. I think I'd put them up maybe in their 70s now. They could they could be older. That'd be fun. Because <laughs> they would be sitting around having cocktails and just enjoying the sun. That would be fine. My next question is, are they social distancing or no? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well... That's a good question. Probably three feet. You know, you just put the chair three feet apart. I guess that might be enough. That's pretty good. (laughs) That's great. I really hope you have that dream tonight. Instead, it just gives you another moment to remember them and to feel them close to you. And so as we wrap up, is there anything else you want to say about your book? And And also, if you can, where people can find it. Oh, sure. So it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And there's a little bookstore in Washington, D.C. that's called Politics and Prose. So I always like to support local bookstores. If anybody looks around here, they could order it from there, too. Yeah, excellent. And yeah, if you're in the D.C. area, definitely support your local business. Um, right. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Julie, for coming on. And everyone else, we hope you enjoyed this program. If you want to know more about the topic, please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca. Uh, if you wanted to support the podcast, that's where you can do that. Also on the website, you can find our online courses by Dr. Joshua Black and Jade Carvin Black. Like I mentioned earlier, there are two courses there, so check them out. One's called the Grief Dreams Workshop, and the other one's called uh, Crazy in Love, Using Romantic Relationships as a Vehicle for Growth. If you have Facebook, you can follow our Grief Dreams podcast page to be notified of when we release our new episodes. You can also join the Grief Dreams Facebook group to share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Instagram and Twitter and now Apple Clubhouse. Uh, And as always, we like to say with love and gratitude from us to you. Myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.